Just let's start it. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Once again, and, and I don't say this because I have to. I say this because I genuinely mean it. Thank you for being here. Thank you for prizing the teaching of the Word. Not the teacher, but the Word. What the Holy Spirit does as we administer the Word of God, as He administers to our lives His very life. So again, thank you for that. Thank you for being passionate, chasing it down, getting up in the morning, making sure that other issues far less important often, not all the time, but often, are put aside as you pursue God through His Word. This morning, what I'm going to do in the first few minutes is just to do a, hopefully, for me, a quick review. You know, for me, a, a review could take three or four or six days, <clears throat> but a quick review of last week's material only to bring us up the snuff and move us along, I just felt that all of the disruptions from last week's class perhaps caused some not to be able to follow along as I wanted them to and I was hoping you would. But secondly, as a teacher, I know that if we were to give a test this morning, even if last week's class had not been interrupted by all the, the uh, what do you call them, pyrotechnics of the machine, this, this cracking and this, this uh, whatever was happening last week, that if we were to give a test, the grades may not be that great because what we often remember is just a small percent of what's being taught or said at a particular setting. And so, therefore, reviews are always good. They're always instructive. So let's do that as we pray. Father, Father, we know that your burden is to reveal yourself, your plan, your way, to us, in and through us. Father, what a gospel this is, that we are no longer required to merit through our obedience eternal life. Father, we are here today, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, having received the merit of another man's obedience having in him been brought forth into your presence from which we will never be expelled. Father, there is no greater news than this for us. Received, forgiven, accepted, adopted, anointed, filled, protected, cherished, loved, kept forever. Father, thank you that your word in Genesis travels the entire length of thousands of years, even into the future, this great work of a God whose passion is to display his glory through his fellowship with his people. Father, show us this more clearly, more compellingly, so that our lives, Father, may be lived more clearly and compellingly, that your glory, the glory of your grace, may be shown to all people at all times, in all circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we leave Noah, 
And by the way, we're going to come back and talk about some of the specifics of the flood and the ark and things like that. I realize we skipped over a lot of that, but I didn't really want to do that until we come back to show that all of these types of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament are fulfilled in one man, in his person, and in his work. And so I really wanted just to concentrate all of that into that next section, if you would, of this study, rather than doing it now and then having to come back and, and reviewing it all. So hopefully uh, you'll be okay with that. I suppose if you're not, there's not much I can do about it. So let's make a little review. First of all, the fall necessitated the recovery the fall necessitated the recovery remember what we said God was obligated to recover his purpose God was obligated to recover man from sin you say wait I thought God was under no obligation to anyone he isn't there is no obligation that God has to meet outside of himself. But the great obligation that we're talking about, the great necessity that we're talking about, is the necessity of the honor of God's own word, of the integrity of his own purpose. And so within himself, God has made a decision that in man, his glory, his image would be on display. He's made that commitment when he created. That was a commitment that God made. And God is not a man that he should lie. And so as a result of that, no matter what happens, God will keep his commitment to his own word that he may be faithful not just to us, but being faithful to us is a demonstration of the greater faithfulness that he has to himself, to his own word. And so the fall necessitated the recovery. Remember, after the fall, God chose to achieve his intention using a variety of topical, topological, typological uh, vehicles. Remember, types, those things that stand for and picture in part other people, uh, other events look forward or down the road, if you would, to something else. This is a type of that. This thing that we're looking at, this person, this circumstances, this circumstance, this whatever today that we're looking at, which is real, that is happening, is a prefiguring or a type of that which is to come in the fullness. And so God uses a variety of these uh, type of, uh, typological vehicles, people, things, or events, as his means over a period of time, thousands of years, all of which appointing to one man who would recover what Adam lost called the second man in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. So as we look at the Old Testament, what we're looking at are actual events, actual people, actual circumstances. Things are happening. This is real history. But God is in the midst of this real history of the Old Testament, doing things and moving things toward a goal. And so as we look at these people, these things of the Old Testament, we must not see them just in and of themselves, isolated from anything that God is doing, but a part of a pattern or part of a puzzle. 
as each one, let's say, fits into God's great puzzle of redemption in a particular way to give greater elucidation, greater revelation, greater understanding, greater comprehension of what the entire puzzle will look like once it's made in completion. And so when we study the Word of God, always study it this way. When we look at the Old Testament, look at it as a real history. This is happening. This man did this. This person went there. They built that. This occurred to them. But do it within the reference of what does this have to do with God fulfilling His intention in Christ? So that we can be able to receive from God a gathering up, a summing of the entire Word of God so that it makes much greater sense to us. And so this is what he's using. Type, typological, I don't know, typographical is my word. I'm not trying to say it's typological. By the way, I even have it misspelled in here. T-Y-P-E, typological. And this is what we see beginning in chapter 6 of Genesis. After the flood, remember we did this last week, so I'll move through it pretty quickly if you'll allow me to do that. After the flood, the curse of sin upon society and the land was still in effect. Remember, God moved to cleanse the world of sin. But sin was still in man. He was cleansing its absolute taking over of mankind. However, God moved to the next phase of his redemptive plan. So he has cleansed the world through of sin through the flood. But then after the flood, he moves to, if you would, a different stage or begins to do his work in a different way. In the flood, God showed that man was incapable and even undesirous of walking in his ways. Do we see that? Why does God flood the world? Because man is both incapable and he just doesn't want to do it and he will not walk in the ways of God. Therefore, the purging of the flood. That's the reason for the flood. The purging, the cleansing. And electing Noah, God was, if you would, starting over. It's a type of recreation. It is a looking forward to when one man will recreate, through this one man, God will recreate what this creation has come through through the fall. So in Noah, it becomes a looking forward through the events and the life of Noah, looking forward to that person in whom God will completely and forever create a new world. So Noah is a type, if you would, of the recreative activity of God. But you see, there's a recreation, but with a difference. This time, God would move through man's worship rather than just purging, and man will worship God and obey him, and God would use this to bring his people to a place of bringing forth the Redeemer. So you see, beginning with Noah, rather than destroying the earth because of sin, Rather than doing that again, because remember, he has promised not to do that. He says, while the earth remains in 822, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God promises never to destroy the earth again through a flood. I'm not going to do it. So beginning with Noah, rather than destroying the earth because of sin, God will in and through this person, his people, he will overcome the curse. So by the time we get to Noah, God is purging the world of the effects of sin. After the flood, God 
moves to the next phase. He has shown that mankind cannot, on his own, is incapable, undesires of walking with God. So with Noah, God begins, if you would, this second phase. I've shown that man is absolutely can't do it, won't do it, has nothing to do with it. So now what I'm going to do, I'm not going to destroy this world through the flood again. I am going to show through these people whom I will elect that sin and the curse can be overcome, can be overcome. And so that's what's happening here. Showing that grace is greater than all our sin. Remember Romans 5.20, where sin abounds what? Grace more than abounds. That's what begins to happen with Noah. God is going to show. Everything is a curse. Everything sin all over the place. What I'm going to do, I'm going to show that in the midst of this sin, I will raise up people in whose life I will overcome in them and through them by my power, the power of my grace, the sin and the control and the effect of that sin until I get to one man in whose life totally all things will be overcome and recreated. That's where the Bible is going after the fall. So now, when God entered into a covenant with Noah, you remember in 618 is the first use of the word covenant, although we saw that there was a covenant in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. When God enters a covenant with Noah in 618, he retains the goal of the covenant of works. The covenant of works goal is not changed, but he does it this way, without the requirement of man's obedience to its fulfillment. You remember the goal of the covenant of works, that Adam through his obedience, would merit eternal life. See, we don't even like to say that, do we? Do you like to hear that? That Adam, through his unfailing, perfect, continual obedience, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember in Genesis 2, 16 and 18, 17 and 18. Through his unswerving obedience, over a period of time, a probation period, Adam will be shown to in himself and by himself able to merit eternal life, merit entering into God's eternal rest and thereby continue in the face of God and with God forever. This is what God had intended in the covenant of works. Now, it is extremely important that we understand that God in these covenants with Noah and continuing is not creating something different but is working the same goal but in a different way through a different means in order to come back to the achievement of the first goal or the first covenant of works. So all these other covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, all the way to the new covenant, God is moving now not by the merit of man but by his grace in man to bring us a man who will in his own obedience merit what Adam could not and did not merit so that in this one man's merit we all receive the merit to be able to have eternal life in God, in Christ. Amen? Do we see this? So everything is moving to that direction. Nothing is, being over, uh, nothing is being changed. God's counsel and His will continue unswervingly the same. 
So you see, in order for man to have fellowship with God, it is always and forever on the basis of man's merit through his obedience. Always. Except this time is through one man's obedience and his merit in whom we are included by grace through faith that we stand before God forever. Can you say amen? That's right. So let's not be these people who understand that there's grace over here and then there's merit and obedience over here and these things are in opposition. Grace is God's way of taking us back into the place of obedience and merit. So thank God for both of these working together. Do we see that? It's critical that we see it because we get fuzzy in these things and it's easy to get confused. Because we look at the terminology of the New Testament, especially in Galatians, it looks like Paul is undoing this. And the reason is because we haven't seen what the Old Testament is telling us in a unified and consistent way. So therefore, God's covenant with man becomes a grace-granted and faith-received covenant, anticipating the covenant of works to be fulfilled in only one man, the last Adam, and then as that man fulfills the covenant of works completely and perfectly, then we are in him by grace through faith. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For we have been saved, what? By grace through faith. We have been included into the covenant of works that has been completely kept by one man and his merit and we receive that benefit, we receive that good, and we receive all that there is in it. And as that one man ever stands before God, this heavenly man ever stands before God, having in himself and by himself merited this place of exaltation before God as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, we are now in him maintained forever before our God. Now that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's why Paul gets so absolutely out of his mind in Galatians 1.6 when people begin to add man's works for merit. We don't work for salvation. We work from salvation or as a result from salvation. So God's covenant with Noah contained the same mandate. It says be fruitful and multiply. Remember? In Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Genesis 9.1, after Noah is out of the ark and whatever, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He repeats the mandate to uh, Noah. Noah, again, is a type of Adam. You see the similarities, which we did about a week or so ago. God was using this mandate to fill the earth, to multiply, to spread, to have a lot of kids for this purpose, to bring forth the seed of the woman. Remember in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. God is going to bring forth the seed, people, the seed of the woman, through whom he will bless the world in one person and until Shiloh comes. Genesis 49.10. Remember, Jacob is blessing his children, and he says to Judah, and the scepter, what is the scepter? The ruling rod. The scepter shall not pass from Judah until Shiloh comes. Who's Shiloh? He whose right it is to rule. 
And there's only one man whose right it is to rule, and that is the man who has perfectly kept the law of God, and he has merited, because of his person and because of his work, this right to rule over all creation. And so until Shiloh comes, which is a term indicative of the coming of the Messiah. And so be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. This is God's means of bringing forth the seed of the woman. But you remember there's also, as people begin to fill the earth, there's also going to be the seed of the serpent. You remember the two seeds? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We've talked about the two different kinds of types of people in the world. Those who are of the purposes of God and those who are opposed to the purposes of God. The seed of the woman, those who are God's people, moved by him for his purpose. The seed of the serpent, those who are opposed to anything of God and anything of that move. So Genesis 9.19 tells us that this is exactly what happens. Genesis 9.19. So from the sons of Noah, remember the three sons of Noah? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Remember these three? From these sons, the people of the whole earth are dispersed. So from these three sons of Noah... All the people of the earth occur from these three boys. And so that's a summary statement. And so what we're going to see in the rest of the, the chapter 10 and chapter 11 this morning is that how does this or what are the aspects of this working out, this filling of the earth. And again, we're emphasizing this for one purpose. When we look at this, this is not just, hey, where did the Russians come from? Hey. Where did black folks come from? Hey, who are the Chinese? <laughs> you know, you can study that and look at the function of this and the purpose of this is to say, hey, God is fulfilling his goal, his plan as people begin to multiply. You see, it's not just about having kids. It's about multiplying and taking the image, remember Genesis 1:26, into all the earth so that the image of God, the knowledge of who God is and how God is, the knowledge of the glory of God may fill the earth through his people as they are scattered around the world. It is, if you would, the very bedrock and foundation of evangelism which the New Testament will take up. And so every time we think of being evangelistic or going out and sharing the gospel or bringing people in here for Alpha or bringing them in here for VBS, any aspect of evangelism is our fulfilling this mandate that the world may be filled with the glory of God by us going out and filling the earth with the glory of God. It has to do with that. That's what we're doing in the church today. I don't want to get too far in front of myself. I'll get lost in all of this. And so how is this done? Through the use of the phrase, the generations of. When you look at Genesis, you'll see this phrase ten different times. It starts in chapter 2, the generations of. With the use of that phrase, Moses is telling us God is keeping his mandate in force. Go out, multiply, fill the earth with my image. Remember in Genesis 1.28 is the first time we see it. It's repeated in Genesis 9.1 to Noah, and it begins to happen. We actually see it before Noah. But God is through this phrase showing us, I am doing what I've mandated man to do. 
the generations of. So that's what the connection is. So in chapter 6, 9, and then in chapter 10, 1, what happens? The gen I'm sorry, I jumped ahead of myself. As we look at these phrases, the generations of, let's note God's elective activity in sifting through the generations for the purpose of birthing a nation which will be his national seed of the woman. As we look at the generations of, what are we going to see? God makes decisions which people will be his seed and which people will not be his seed. This is an elective purpose of God. Now, this is something we don't like. Come on, come on. You mean to tell me that God chose him and didn't choose him? Yes. And we will find out one day that's the best thing going because it was up to us to choose. None of us would choose for God and all of us would go to hell. God chooses. It's called election. It's called predestination. God chooses. You see, God's elective purpose from the very beginning of Genesis all the way through the Bible, it is God who is moving and deciding and electing and calling and anointing and empowering. It is God. It is we, people, who are responding to that cooperatively as God's people. But we are responding to that which has been given to us and moved on us by the Holy Spirit. So God makes a decision. He's going to decide who's going to be this group, who's going to be that group. So as we look at the generations, you'll see there is a distinction that begins to occur. Who's making the distinction? God does. Or do we think that, hey, I just was, luck of the draw, I was born into a Christian family. Luck of the draw, I was born into America. Luck of the draw, I, you believe that? Anybody believe in luck in here? Please purge your language of luck. It is a demonic word. It is a word from Satan. Nothing is of luck. Everything is of God's ordained purpose. Okay? So no more luck. And if you say it around me, say it softly so I can't hear it. Because I may respond. You know me, I wouldn't probably respond, but I, I might be urged to respond. So let's look at it. And you don't have to follow in your Bible, but let, let follow along with me. In Genesis 5.1, we start it, the generations of Adam. And so what happens in Genesis 5? We take the generations of Adam, and we had Cain and Abel. Remember that? Cain kills Abel. God raises up another son called Seth. And then it travels from Seth all the way to the end of chapter 5 and ends with Noah. Verses, uh, I have three, okay, verse 3 to 29. The rest of the chapter is from Seth to Noah, going through the various generations of Seth all the way down to Noah. See, God, having rejected the line of Cain and moved through the line of Seth, God makes a decision. Then in chapter 6, 9, and in 10, 1, we see the generations of Noah. It's, repeat, uh, it's stated first thing in chapter 6, verse 9, and then it's given over again in chapter 10, verse 1, and this time we go into more detail. The generations of Noah. Who are the three sons in verse 10? Shem. Ham, and Japheth. These are the three sons of Noah. Now let's try to remember some of these names. These are significant names because from these three men 
will come all the nations of the world as God disperses these men into the, th these men and their generations into all the ends of the world. Now, before moving to the line of Seth, what Genesis 10 does, it records the line of Noah's two sons, <clears throat> Japheth and Ham, and only part of the line of Seth. In verses 2 to 5, we have a recording of the generations of the sons of Japheth. And then in 6 to 20, we have, <clears throat> excuse me, we have the sons of Ham. And then in 22 and 31, we have some of the sons of Shem. So in basic form, at the end of chapter 10, we have basically drawn out for us the generations and who they are and what groups of people they are. With the exception of Shem, what the author does here is just give some of the generations of Shem. Why? Because what we're going to find out, it is through the line of Shem that God will continue the seed of the woman. Remember, it was to be Abel. Abel was killed. Then God raises up Seth and his generations, all these kids back and forth and all over the place, but there's a line that travels all the way to Noah. Noah has three sons, and then the line again reduces or is, you know, um, um, narrowed down to one son. His name is what? Shem. And through this son, he will have five sons. But only through one of these sons and then one of another son and all that. And he's calling off all the branches. He's traveling all the way through again to get to what? To get to the seed of the woman, to get to a place where he will have a national seed of the woman, a nation in whom he will bring forth the seed of the woman. So that's what's happening. Therefore, anything that occurs to this line that impacts it at all in relation to God's purpose, the Bible is going to record it. Anything that is happening that has no impact as to God's purpose in relation to this line, God is not going to record it. He's only going to deal with those things that have to do with his purpose. And that's why you don't see the history of the Chinese people and the Indians here and the people in Antarctica. Why? Because they have nothing at all at that particular point to do with the seed of the woman. God is working it this way and everybody else is left out of the picture as far as historical reference is concerned. Why was Seth's lineage truncated, you know what I mean, shortened or made smaller? The Lord's purpose was not to give an exhaustive list of Seth's line, but to show that he differentiated among the sons of Seth to bring forth the seed of the woman. Now, what does that say to us? He differentiated. You know what that says to me? I am here today because of God's choice. How can I crow? Do you know that, I'll speak at least for me, and it's true for all of us, God was absolutely, unequivocally under no obligation to save me. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. God, beforehand, before the foundation of the world, remember in Ephesians 1, 4, He chose us in Christ. And then birthed us into the world in particular places and the circumstances. And then brought about the revelation and the message of the gospel. We see that in Romans 10. And through that revelation, the message of the gospel, the Holy Spirit 
removed our heart of stone, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, and gave us a fleshly heart so that we would believe. So having had that work occur in us, which is called being born again, we receive Christ. And when we receive Christ, we were justified. Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Remember that in Romans 5.1. This is what happened. I thank God for his differentiating decisions. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here today. And none of you would. Can we thank God? that he is a God of sovereign choice. Now, what about the questions I may have? I have a thousand of them. But I will not let my questions or confusion undo what is true. Never let your questions, confusion, or whatever undo what the Bible clearly teaches. Don't let that happen. Stick with what the Word of God says, even though we may have to scratch our heads like this, what Paul does in Romans eleven thirty three, He says, this is beyond understanding. He says, I don't get it. That's what he's saying after he's talked about the elected purpose of God in Romans 9, 10, and 11. I don't get it. It's way too deep for me, and yet he's just taught you. So the listing of the generations is imputed, inter uh, sorry, interpreted by the account of man's attempt to preempt God. It's interrupted. I don't know why I can't spell anymore. When in Genesis 11, by the time we get to Genesis 11, the Bible in verse 10 on in Genesis 11 is going to give us a line of set. But before that happens, we have an interruption. God tells us what's going on here. Let me read this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And the people migrated from the east. What people? <clears throat> what people? The sons of Shem... Ham and Japheth, the sons of generations of, the offspring, the seed of these people. And they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for martyr. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. You hear it? Rather than a, the name of God in us, a name for ourselves. Watch how we read the Word of God and look what we're looking at. It's undoing Genesis 1:26 here. Man in my image, here's man for his image and in his image. Lest we be dispersed over the whole land. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that, the, <clears throat> that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us, isn't that interesting? Who? Us. You see, the same us as in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man. Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the land, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, the name of the city is called Babel, or Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all, all, language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. What was happening? Well, let me quickly go through this. What is happening is man was defiantly disobeying God's mandate to fill the earth. God said, spread out. And fill the earth, man says, we're going to get together in one place. We're going to build a city. We're going to build a tower. We're not listening to that dispersion mandate. We're going to come together in one place at one people, and this is what we're going to do. 
You see, in uniting to build a city and a tower to reach heaven, man was declaring that he was independent of God. He was seeking the preeminence. Man was seeking his own preeminence rather than the preeminence of God. And remember, in Colossians 1.18, it will be Christ who will have the preeminence. Man is seeking for himself only what God has in himself. So man sought fleshly unity rather than godly unity, which would display the unity that exists within God. Now, just as a thought, real quick, I'll throw this out quickly. In this context, man speaks one language and God disperses it. What happens on the day of Pentecost? Man's many languages are brought into unity. We all hear them speaking our own language. Language. You see, you see on the day of Pentecost, this is an idea later on. You see on the day of Pentecost, this activity is being undone by the Holy Spirit. This preeminence of man is being undone by the Holy Spirit as it is being shown or uh, proven by the tongues issue. They're given unity together and they're given God's tongue, God's word together and then they go out and men of all sorts and creeds and whatever are gathered together in unity which is what they wanted to do at Babel in their own estimation and their own power can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you see when Paul talks about Ephesians, in Ephesians the unity of the Spirit. It's very important that that is what God is, undo, God is undoing that Genesis 11 kind of a thing. So as a result, God dispersed them, not allowing them to speak the same language. And if you look in the Bible, Babel or, Babel or Babel becomes a picture of that which is in marked contrast to the purposes of God. So let's see what's happening in Genesis 11, 10 through 32. This is the generations of Seth. In this chapter, Seth's line is traced all the way to Abram. Now you see how we're moving. We started with Adam, then Abel. Abel is cut off by sin, his brother's sin. God raises up Seth, not to be deterred. God will not be deterred. Don't you ever worry about God keeping his word and accomplishing his goal. Don't you ever have to worry about that. And then through Seth will come Noah. Then through Noah will come three boys, but Shem will carry on the line and his descendants. And it will travel all the way through to the end of chapter 11 where we begin to see the name that we all recognize, which is Abraham or Abram before his name is changed. So, Apakshad, one of the five sons of Seth, is mentioned and his sons are mentioned in verses 10 to 25. Notice that each son had other sons and daughters but these other sons and daughters are ignored. Why? Not being in the line of the seed of the woman. So they all had other kids. But the Bible is only tracing through the male heir one person at a time to come to the place of getting to Abraham or Abram through who, who will be called the father of the faith or the father of Israel or the person in whom the nation of the seed of the woman will begin. So in verse 26 in chapter 11, we wind up with Terah. The emphasis changes from a listing of the next kin to a listing of his sons and daughters. And all of a sudden, things change. They slow down real fast. 
we're moving along. This one had this one, this one had this one, this one had, a, they had other sons and daughters, they had other sons and daughters, and all of a sudden we come to Terah, and all of a sudden we put on the brakes. And we're going to go into more detail with this particular man. In one of Terah's seed, we are being introduced to the man with whom God will establish his covenant that will eventuate with the creation of his people as a nation in Israel. So from Terah will come Abram. So let me read it. In verses 26 to 32, chapter 11 of Genesis. And this will close out the first half, if you would, of the book of Genesis. As God has in these chapters given us all the background and the foundation and the reason and the goal and all the explanation that we need to have in order to begin fulfilling it now specifically through a particular people what he began in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. So here are the verses. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. How many of us have heard of Lot? Come on, how many of us are Lot? Only about five of you, okay. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishkah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Okay, now that ends chapter 11. You see, this is not just a listing of another family. This is our spiritual family. Now, can we see this? We, by faith, are in this family. This is our spiritual family. Abraham is our spiritual father. This is how God sees it. Acts 7, 2, remember what Stephen says as he begins a sermon. For the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Now he's talking to the Jews, but he's also including anyone else who is of the faith. In Galatians 3, 7, Paul shows us this. It is those of faith, faith in whom? In Christ, who are the sons <clears throat> of Abraham. So what we have just gone through is a listing of our spiritual genealogy. We want to see ourselves in the Old Testament. Don't just read this book about all these strange people, strange cultures, strange names, and all of this weird stuff, and say, oh, it's th them, that, that. We and you, us together, were there spiritually. Do we understand this? What God was doing then was preparing to bring forth the seed of the woman, a man. And we are related to all of those who are of faith in that one seed as the children of God. So we're there, what? Spiritually. There may be people in here, and there are folks in here who are ethnically Jewish, but most of us are not. But we're all spiritually of the household of faith of the true Israel, as Paul calls it. You see, it will be Abram or Abraham 
through whom God will form the seed of the woman into a nation, Israel, in whom then over the years and years and years he would finally bring forth the seed of the woman for the redemption of his plan in mankind and for mankind. Amen? Now what we're going to start doing next week is going to start showing how God implements this through temple and through Jerusalem and through some of these other issues that we will see as we collect the rest of what the Old Testament is telling us and how it holds together in this revelation. So see you next week. Thank you a lot.